16 or 17 years ago, I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley studying Soviet history. The school has an unusually large contingent of historians training to work on the USSR. And the whole group does these meetings once a month in the evening where everybody drinks wine and eats cookies while either a visiting scholar or one of the more advanced students presents a draft chapter from his or her book or dissertation. We called it Kruzhok, which in Russian means circle or study club is a better translation. In the spirit of, you know, all the great Russian intellectuals who'd come before us. I was a lucky guest at these events. It was actually my job to co-organize them one year, but I dropped out of the program after about two years, realizing that I make a lousy historian. And in all the shame that I carry for bombing out of that PhD, there's one Kruzhok meeting that stings especially hard when I remember it. One time, we got a presentation from a scholar named Stephen Brain, who at the time was a fellow student, and he now teaches the history of science and technology at Mississippi State University, which makes him Professor Brain, if you can believe it. Anyway, Stephen presented a chapter from his dissertation that later became his book. Now, I've gone back through my emails, and I've, I've confirmed it. It was 45 pages, double-spaced, about forest management in revolutionary-era Russia and about the anarchy of early Bolshevik forest administration. It was about the Narkomzem, the Soviet Agriculture and Food Ministry, and the Tsul-Elar. I'm not sure how you're supposed to pronounce that, but it's the central administration of the forests. And Stephen found his story a hero in an imperial-era forester named Georgi Morozov who advocated more holistic notions in forest management that would inform many Soviet policies after his death and after the Russian Civil War. Anyway, that's as good a summary of the text as I can manage because the main reason I remember any of this at all is that my contribution to Stevens Kruzhok was to say during the Q&A after his presentation that I was surprised to learn that environmentalism or forest management existed at all in the USSR as I had unthinkingly assumed both that Russia was too committed to industrialization to care about how many trees it had, and also, paradoxically, I guess, that Russia's landmass is just so big that it probably has more trees than it knows what to do with anyway. If I remember right, Stephen looked at me for a few seconds, smiled, and thanked me for my comment. And now let me bring this back to the present day, because another assumption I still carry with me today is that most people share my ignorances, which means some of the people listening to me right now might also marvel to think about environmentalism in Russia and about the concept of forest management in Russia. Throw in the context of the planet's climate crisis, and that's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And for this week's episode, I spoke to Angelina Davidova, an environmental journalist based in Russia before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine who now lives in Germany. She recently co-authored an article with Eugene Simonov, published by both the Ukraine War Environmental Consequences Workgroup and Keter Media. The article is titled, Does Russia Have a Green Future? Question mark. And it explores where Russia is headed environmentally in light of the war effort against Ukraine and all the Western sanctions imposed as a result. Now, before we get to that interview, you know what's coming next. Yes, it's a word from one of my colleagues about why it's so gosh darn important that you support Medusa in any way you can. Be a pal and don't skip through it. 
Eilish Hart here, the editor of The Beat, a weekly newsletter from Medusa that brings you in-depth reporting and original analysis on developments in Central and Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. More than 5,000 people from around the world have subscribed to our newsletter since we launched in September 2022. And I'm always glad to see that people are sharing our stories via email forwarding or on social media. For our readers inside Russia, however, sharing issues of the beat simply isn't worth the risk. Earlier this year, the Russian authorities designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a national security threat. In other words, all of our work, from our investigative reports and our podcasts, to our social media posts and our newsletters like The Beat, it's all a crime now inside Russia. And anyone living in Russia who shares our work or donates money to our crowdfunding campaign risks criminal charges that could land them in prison for years. With this in mind, I'd like to remind listeners that support from our international audience has never been more important. Your donations sustain our work now more than ever, so please contribute if you can and help spread the word about our crowdfunding campaign. And of course, tell your friends to subscribe to The Beat. Okay, let's get on with the show. Back in mid-May, about a month ago, as I'm recording this, the Russian authorities straight-up outlawed Greenpeace, giving it the same treatment as Medusa slapping the organization with an undesirability label that makes its operations illegal in Russia. Greenpeace International poses a danger to the foundations of Russia's constitutional order and national security, declared the prosecutor general's office. Greenpeace's work actively promotes a political agenda and attempts to interfere in the state's internal affairs with an aim to undermine its economic foundations. Heavy stuff, especially given that Greenpeace itself says the crackdown which forced it to dissolve its Russian branch, was retaliation for Greenpeace's opposition to proposed changes to Russia's environmental law that would lift the ban on logging around Lake Baikal, a protected ecosystem in Siberia and the world's largest freshwater lake. In another world, the next Jason Statham movie would have him fighting a giant shark or something in Lake Baikal. It's big. And a couple of months earlier, Russia's Justice Ministry designated the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, as a foreign agent for allegedly trying to influence the decisions of the executive and legislative branches of the Russian Federation and to hinder the completion of industrial and infrastructural projects under the guise of protecting nature and the environment. These are the newsiest developments in Russian environmentalism so far this year. So I asked Angelina Davidova what she expects the short-term and the long-term fallout to be of the crackdown on these two international groups? Well, as I understand it, there are a few consequences. First of all, Greenpeace is leaving Russia, which is quite the news in itself. As we know, Greenpeace is working in quite a number of countries across the world, including China, right? And Russia banning it so outright, banning the history of the organization that worked for more than 30 years in the country, basically, after the fall of the Soviet Union, I feel like it comes within the whole role of events of pushing all international organizations out of Russia, closing Russia for any not approved by the state international cooperation, any international organizations which do not agree with what is being done in Russia or criticize Russia in some way. So I would say this is consequence number one, less international organizations. More environmental consequence and maybe like less direct consequence is that environmental sector is uh, getting less professional. 
because organizations like Greenpeace, they had quite a lot of people working for them, like dozens of people in Russia. And uh, many of them, they were not only campaigners or people who did media or PR or working with volunteers. And Greenpeace had thousands of volunteers in Russia. But Greenpeace also had environmental lawyers. People, Greenpeace in Russia also had people who were doing advocacy and were doing it very professionally. Whenever there was a dangerous bill to appear, which would, I don't know, make an amendment to environmental legislation, for example, allow the construction infrastructure in national parks or something similar, Greenpeace lawyers and WWF lawyers, they would spot it and they would come out to the public, they would come out to the journalists and tell them, look, there's something scary happening. We need to pay attention to this. We need to do something about it. And those are very professional people. So those were people who were watching out for the legislation changes. Those were people who were also present in various forms of advisory councils with various ministries and further state institutions. And we're basically watching out for bad things to happen. And we're trying to prevent them or we're trying to amend them any way possible. So now that activity is becoming very, very complicated because there are very few Russian organizations and independent Russian environmental lawyers who are able to do the same. And then the third consequence, I already mentioned thousands of volunteers that Greenpeace was helping. But apart from these people, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the last, I would say, five to six years, all across Russian regions, there were numerous grassroots civil society campaigns, environmental campaigns. Many of these people were fighting or protesting for clean air against plans to build an incineration plant against plans to cut down a park, like, you know, very urban environmental topics. And very often they were not heard at the regional level. And very often for their campaign to be successful, they also relied on help from large organizations like Greenpeace or WWF. Now that help is also now like disappearing. Many people who would come up and ask for help from a Greenpeace lawyer or Greenpeace PR team or Greenpeace media team, like they will not get it. You mentioned the professionalization of the environmental activists and people that were tied into that whole line of work. In the article that you wrote with Eugene Simonov, you write about Russian scholars being commissioned to produce basically shoddy research to justify the construction of new hydro power stations these stations that are disrupting the natural water regimes that are, that are feeding into the Arctic Ocean and other areas, and they're, doing, they're basically disrupting all kinds of natural rhythms that have been in place for a long time. Can you say anything about what exactly the researchers lied about or fudged, like basically this kind of corruption of, of Russian environmental science? Well, I think here, once again, we have a number of trends and a number of motivations from the side of the state to do this and promote this. And motivation number one is what they call Western influence or Western interference. They want to do what they think is the right thing to do. And they want no Western criticism of any plans of, for example, Arctic exploration or further oil and gas extraction projects or anything like this. So they don't want any of this criticism to be coming from outside the country or within the country. Now, reason number two Russian economy, and I'm sure you spoke about that in a number of other episodes, is basically restructuring itself. And also expert rules are also being restructured, right? A lot is going now to the East, including 
oil and gas and coal and many other minerals. And there are plentiful plans in Russia to start exploring that particular mineral or that particular rare earth metal or something similar. A lot of these plans, I mean, in normal conditions, they would obviously require environmental impact assessment done from the state side and also done from the public side. And for example, these days, they're changing a lot of legislation to make, first of all, state environmental impact assessments uh, more formal and cancel public environmental impact assessment as such. So it makes it much more difficult for the public to be against such large extraction projects in Russia. And um, likewise, another serious change in the legislation since the beginning of the war is the fact that they're trying to change a lot of legislation which regulates nature-protected areas, including national parks and nature reserves. Here, once again, for two main reasons. Reason number one, because domestic tourism is growing. Fewer Russians can go abroad and many more Russians are looking for options to spend their vacation within the country. And so there's an increasing demand for domestic tourism infrastructure. And a number of investors are looking forward to building that infrastructure somewhere where national parks are. And we've seen a number of such cases. There were numerous attempts, especially since the beginning of the war, I would say. This, these attempts have intensified. And professional environmental community have been trying to push back and stop a number of these reforms, but basically the plan's still going. So with the number of nature reserves, they failed, and with the number of nature reserves, they just go forward. Apart from the tourism, as I mentioned, there are two main reasons. So reason number one is tourism, reason number two is resource extraction. And once again, when they find something like gold or nickel or whatever, cadmium, whatever, on, on the territory of nature-protected area, they're just trying to cut that area out of the nature-protected, take its nature-protection status away from it and just start the exploration. I see. And very often, in order for these projects to be justified and also to be scientifically justified, they do something which is like fake scientific expertise. They basically pay, or even if it's a state-owned company, I mean, they can even make a contract with a local university or something ask people there to provide scientific evidence and all of this can be done. So basically, whatever results you need, you can get it with political pressure and with the money, unfortunately. And is that a new development or has that always been? More or less, it has always been there. I mean, there have been this dubious scientific environmental expertises have always been there. Is that is that a universal thing or is that, has Russia been particularly plagued by that? I mean, I feel like I've seen jokes about that in American cartoon shows like about getting a bogus environmental review. Like it's just part of it. It's like a joke you make. Now, hang on. Before you do construction, don't you have to make sure you're not harming any native species? You mean cursory environmental survey? Already done by top scientists. You are. Oh, my, yes. You've got the go ahead, Mr. Huang. This place is deader than last year's cat. I'm not such an expert in all 100, whatever, 93 countries across the world, right? I do read stories about that, also in international media. I think what's really important here is that, I mean, it's quite clear that, for example, a large company, it also happens elsewhere, like a large company, including large international oil and gas companies, they also, so to say, buy scientists, and they also pay for research, which is good for them. 
But the question is, is there someone who can investigate it? Is there someone in the country who can say, look, this is not a right thing. We have alternative research, which provides us with different data. And we have a second opinion, or we have a third opinion. And now what's happening in Russia, they're just trying to ban this any chances of the second or third opinion or any criticism to be published, to appear, and to reach out to the public. So that's the problem. I see. Can you say a little bit about the difference between Russia's approach to reserves and conservation? You talk about it as like a it's modeled on seeking sort of absolute protection, whereas in the United States, the school of thought with the national parks is like, oh, make them accessible to the public, make them educational. What are the pros and cons of, of each system? Like, is one definitively better than the other, or are they just sort of different ways of, of doing it? Well, the Russian system, which began to be formed even like before the Soviet Union appeared and then got sort of developed throughout the various decades of the Soviet Union, had also various stages of the sector development, I would say. So in some years, there were more national parks and nature reserves created. In some other, there were less, and even some nature reserves have lost their special nature protection status. But basically, the whole idea behind the system of nature protected area in Russia is that there are areas with various degree of protection. There are some areas which are called nature reserves, which are actually not for the public. And they are there to be left as they are. In modern wording, we would say they are there to perform their ecosystem functions. Basically, they're not there for people going there and just spending a weekend. And then there are also national parks, which are more open for the public and which are more for tourism infrastructure, and which are basically something where people can go and spend some time and just, you know, be close to nature. So... That division, there's like roughly two kinds. In the legislation, there are many more kinds, but like roughly speaking, there are two main kinds. And um, what we have seen in the last few years in Russia, on one hand, the state, and this already began before the war, I would say, the state is finding it more and more difficult to finance the system and to find enough money for supporting it. And this is why we see a lot of, for example, areas which used to be nature reserves they're trying to turn them now into national parks, or they're trying to allow certain economic activities in areas which had very strict nature protection status. Once again, not enough money, willingness of many large oligarchic groups to build infrastructure and earn money with this. So we see the strand. We see the strand of development of tourism. And um, unfortunately, in case of Russia, very often development of tourism also means development of uncontrolled tourism or tourism which profits a few economic and financial groups and does not also provide the conservation purposes. In the article that you wrote, you present this idea that Russia has or had before the February 2022 invasion had an opportunity to be like a great power in environmental terms that's not really possible anymore. When, when you talk about opportunities for Russia, is it just that they could have continued to work with international partners and not taking this route of trying to stop all Western-led initiatives? Or like, is there some technology that Russia was sitting on that they could have developed? Or, or is it more kind of like large and all-encompassing when you say opportunities? Well, 
if you look geographically, like from the planetary prospect, Russia is the largest country on the planet from the point of view of the area. And uh, it has various ecosystems from the Arctic to forests, boreal forests, the steppes, a lot of wetlands, a lot of rivers, freshwater reservoirs, and a lot of these areas just do not have any human population at all. I mean, if you, before, 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 many years ago, if you would take a flight from Moscow to Tokyo, and then the way you fly, you fly over like Russia, 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 and then Japan. And most of this, what you fly over, if it's a sunny day and you see land, there's just like no human activity at all. And um, I would refer to it as an important role, but also as a responsibility. All these resources which Russia has in the last 30 years and like even before, They've been very often viewed as resources in terms of we have them, we can extract them, we can sell them, right? And we can use this money for, I don't know, buying fancy properties and building yachts, sending our kids to UK schools. And this is once again for the elite, right? And then there was this second layer of understanding when the whole climate debate and biodiversity ecosystem debate reached Russia. Russia also realized, wow, we're the largest country in the world. But why is everyone telling us what to do in terms of our industry and oil and gas? We, maybe we can just not do anything. We can just, you know, relax. We have so much, so many forests. They'll take away all this carbon, which we emit by burning oil and gas and coal. And that was another, like, very, I would say, instrumentalized approach to the resources, right? Once again, we have so many of them. We don't need to worry about our oil. And I think both of these approaches are very wrong. They are also not the approach which the world needs globally in the 21st century. Now that we have the climate crisis, now that we have the biodiversity crisis and many others, something which the UN now calls the poly crisis, right? And this is also not the kind of approach for a sustainable development of the country in the 21st century. So instead of what Russia is doing, and I think we also speak about that in our article, actually referring to an earlier article by Australian philosopher Freya Matthews, she wrote that other article a few months ago saying that Russia is operating an understanding of greatness from many centuries ago, still trying to seize further lands instead of managing its resources sustainably for the well-being of the people who live in Russia and also who live globally. And I think this is a very important argument. What can we do in an ideal world? What can we do with all these resources so that they benefit people in Russia and they also benefit the global world? I mean, we now keep saying that how war is wrong in so many levels, right? From the very direct level, like war is wrong. Trying to seize another country is wrong. Killing people is wrong. I mean, like destroying cities is wrong, right? So there's this level. But then also they all level, um, like Russia lets people, for example. When I was looking at all these huge migration waves, especially the first one straight away after the beginning of the war and the second one following the partial mobilization wave, leaving the country, I was thinking, it's so crazy. Like all these people leave the largest country in the world and are trying to find their new home in much smaller countries. Why couldn't we build a system which would manage these resources very responsibly and very sustainably. 
And by this, I mean, what is current understanding of sustainable management of resources? If you speak about ecosystems, that would be leaving some of these ecosystems just untouched, no human interference. Let them be untouched by any kind of human activity and just perform their ecosystem functions. The world needs this. The world needs free rivers. The world needs untouched forests. The world needs steppes. The world needs various kinds of ecosystems, wetlands, which are not dried for the sake of being cities. And uh, Russia has the potential to do this. And also with all the international negotiations in the area of climate and biodiversity, the world chances of developing international, for example, finance program, which would finance that, that Russia would be getting some money for just keeping them intact. On another hand, the world obviously also needs like many more resources. And now with the era of oil and gas and coal is kind of coming down gradually, maybe not very quickly, not as quickly as we want to, but gradually. There's more demand, as we understand, for certain kind of metals, which are crucial for the global green transformation. There's need for, for example, green hydrogen. There's need for wood-based polymers, which would be produced from sustainably managed forests. Unfortunately, by starting the war, by cutting its ties with the West, Russia is consciously, well, not Russia, I would say the elites of Russia, consciously leading Russia back into the system when all of these resources are being quickly extracted now and sold mostly to, to the Asian countries. You, you describe the climate crisis. You say that it can feel rather abstract when compared to something like the war in Ukraine because you, you know the climate crisis endangers the planet's ecosystem now, but also like in the decades to come, whereas in Ukraine, people are dying every minute, I guess, or every day. Do you think there's a way to make any progress while the war is happening? Because on one hand, obviously, the, the West has little incentive to work with Russia on anything environmental related. And then the, on, from the Russian perspective, we see that they have less incentive to pursue these green initiatives, right? Is this just something that's going to be bad and worse until the war ends, until the Putin regime collapses, or just they get old and die and there's a next, the next level? I mean, like this is a huge obviously like meta level question, but I guess I just wanted to, and I'm not asking you for your, your plan forward, um, but I just was wondering if I could sort of gauge your, your, your optimism or your pessimism here. That's a really difficult question. I've actually been thinking a lot about that. I've been writing a lot about that. As you might know, I'm an observer of the UN climate negotiations, and I've been an observer since 2008. And I went to the last few sessions, like last summer in Bonn and then last November in Sharm el-Sheikh. And I saw Russian delegation there saying, look, we cannot stop any climate cooperation. Climate is a global topic. We should continue our conversation. We should have access to green technologies. And now kind of many of them are banned because of the sanctions. We should have access to green finance. But then Western countries were not really react to this statement. And understandably why, like completely understandably why. I mean, there were a number of Ukrainian activists also doing actions like Russia is destroying global climate and global environment by bombing Ukraine, killing people and polluting land and polluting air and water and destroying ecosystems in Ukraine, which is also completely relevant. But then I also saw what Russia is trying to do. Russia is trying to kind of build the block of other non-Western countries around itself. 
in order to create the so-called sovereign green agenda, sovereign climate agenda, non-Western climate agenda. But also, for example, Russia is now trying to look what's happening in the area of carbon regulation in Southeast Asia or it's happening in the Gulf countries. And so far, the way I perceive it, it's mostly the words, like Russia is saying we're interested. It does not really get commitment from other countries. It's more about talks and meetings, nothing more than this. There are a lot of studies coming out in Russia on what's happening in the area of green development, say in the Gulf countries, or what are the ways to access Islamic green finance or something similar. We'll have to see how this develops. But with the Western countries, it's more or less, everything is more or less on a pause now, right? Like there's nothing happening. I understand what this other non-Western countries, well, theoretically, like what are the countries of the global South interested in? And very often they're interested in climate finance. And Russia cannot provide climate finance. Russia can provide some scientific help and like research help. And Russia can also provide some technologies, for example, for resources extraction or something like geology from Rosgeologia, like Russian state geological company. More nuclear technologies, right? So Russia is really pushing its nuclear technologies all around the world. I would say at the moment, this is it. So I don't see any other practical baseline or foundation for any further cooperation partners also from the countries of the global south. But back to the question, what makes sense to do now? What is possible and what I think is important, and we also mentioned it in the article, is that cooperation with people, especially obviously the ones who obviously stated their position with regard to the war, many experts who left the country and who are being elsewhere, environmental experts, scientists, and also some of them who are still in the country and are trying to do something, maybe not in a direct connection with the state. So I would still say talks are needed, discussions are needed. I would still say understanding is needed of what's happening in Russia in the area of environmental climate. And I would still say open or closed or like conversations, like not public or not public conversations with these people are also needed just to keep in touch and to try and think what is being done, what can be done, what could be done in the future when one day, hopefully, the war is over and the situation in Russia also changes as well. Political situation changes. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.